So Robin was the only woman working on this men's magazine, which, okay, is weird to start with. This magazine, you should picture Maxim or FHM, but not as classy. They would um, get a medium famous TV star like Alyssa Milano out into the desert and convince her to take off her top for a photo shoot, that kind of thing. So Robin's working there and she's 23, just out of college, and she had started as the intern and she would write little music reviews. And then her bosses asked her to do a much more substantial story than she'd ever done about a Japanese pop star named Seiko. They came to me and this was a possible cover. I'm sure my jaw just dropped. And, you know, she's coming in tomorrow. She's the Japanese Madonna. And you need to go to the photo shoot. She's going to get completely naked. And, you know, this is the first time that this woman has ever done anything scandalous. And you get to be the one to break the story of her coming to America. And how'd that go? Um, not well. You know, I hadn't had a lot of experience with high-level celebrities, and she had eight people come to the interview with us. She also had figured out a way of doing this sort of interview style that's very mirroring, where she would repeat back to me what I had asked. Wait, like, like what? Give me an example. Um, uh, so what kind of clothes do you like to wear when you're performing? What kinds of clothes would you like to wear? You know, and I'd be like, well, I'm not sure because I'm not performing. But if I were, I'd probably want to wear chaps, a small cowboy hat. You know, I didn't know how to react, you know. (laughs) And, um, you know, when I was asking her about her romantic life, she would do that same style. And I think it really worked. It did unsettle me. You know, I'd say, you know, are you involved with anyone? What do you love about men? And she'd be like, what do you love about men? And... You know, left the the interview pretty close to being in tears, and um, so I went home with a very brief interview where essentially I had more of myself on tape than I had of her. And I called back to the office and I said, "There's just nothing here on on every level. There's nothing here." And they said, "Well, make it work. It's a two thousand word piece now. It's a feature. It's our main feature in the feature wall." and go home and take your notes and write what you can with it. So she didn't know what to do. And then she started thinking, okay, how would all the guys in the office write this story? The magazine she worked for, they did that uh, men's magazine thing where the writer basically just drools over the girl in the story and how hot that girl is. And Robin thought, okay, fill enough paragraphs with that. And the fact that she had no decent quotes from Seiko wouldn't even matter. And I decided, you know, my name sort of sounds like a boy anyway. I'm just going to write it as if I'm a man who thinks she's the most attractive woman that's ever walked the earth, which is what I did. Okay. And so and so we have the article here. <laughs> I just ask you to read – here's the article. Okay. Can I ask you to just read the first paragraph or two? The prospect of seeing a beautiful woman's bare skin keeps me sane as I sit in traffic en route to the photo session for Seiko, the reigning Japanese pop queen. Hot flashes of the Asian teen queen under an erotic spell of the camera blazes me a path through L.A. bumper to bumper, and I arrive eager, mentally aroused, and a half an hour late. The nude has been shot. Proof of the event is handed to me in Polaroid form. There, I get my first glimpse of Seiko as she posed a mere 30 minutes prior, wearing only a good girl smile and a fan splayed over her privates. And immediately, I'm consumed with the need to see in person what looks so tempting on film. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Did did um did the men who you work with did they like this? They thought it was um like wow look at her how cool that our little girls you know they our little thought, girls growing up yeah our little girls growing up to be a misogynist we're so you know <laughs> we're thrilled you know yeah yeah. So after a while, the magazine hits the newsstands, and when Robin gets to work the next day, her phone is already ringing. It's Seiko's publicist. I thought she was calling me because I'd written an article that she found offensive. But, you know, I found out it was really she was upset because this woman had gotten naked on our, the set of our photo shoot. And she was going to have to try to control this so it basically doesn't cause this huge scandal in Japan. So, Oh, because she's like supposed to be a wholesome girl. That's yes. her image, wholesome girl. Yes. So this okay. is the first time she's ever really shown skin or anything like that. So I'm waiting in the office prepared to deal with camera crews that want to talk about her nudity. And I remember I came up. There might have even been more than one TV crew waiting in the reception area. And when I came out and I was a woman, they were completely freaked out. Now, the reason why they freaked out, as best as Robin was able to piece together later, the reason why was that when Seiko came to the United States to try to establish herself, not just as a Japanese pop star, but as an American pop star, this rumor started circulating in Japan that Seiko was leaving her husband behind for some American. And so the press, the Japanese press, was trying to figure out, is there an American? Who was this American? So when they got this article, they were like, well, this person certainly seems obsessed with her and very sexually hot for her. Maybe Mr. Robin Forrest is her current lover. So when Mr. Robin Forrest came out and Mr. Robin Forrest is a, you know, college-aged girl, you know, they were really freaked out. Oh, now Seiko has left her husband for this college-aged girl who's obsessed with her. Who looks just like, you know, an L.A. surfer girl, you know, and that just sent them into a tizzy. Like the story has gotten so much better than they ever dreamed. Right, right, right. So Robin sits down for this first interview, and she has no idea about any of this at the time, right? She thinks that they're only there to talk about the nudity. And she tries to do right by Seiko. She says what a nice girl Seiko is, how she hopes Seiko's album does great in the United States. And that was that. So that first interview, I remember I just thought, well, I really set the record straight there, you know? And I thought that would be the end of the TV cruise coming. So then the second day, about like three or four came. So I did another interview with one of them. I thought, well, maybe this will make them leave. And in that interview, that was the first time anyone said, are you attracted to her? And so I'm on camera, you know, and I was like, oh, wait, you think that I, I was like, oh, no, 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 I'm not a lesbian. Wait, wait, and did you say you didn't find her sexy? Because you have a whole article here saying you did. Well, I said, you know, I can recognize that she's attractive as a woman, but no, I'm not attracted to her. And then they would just try to slip in a quick question, like, did you touch her breast? <laughs> and, I'd, and I would be like, um, no. And then they'd just move on, you know, like, really clever, you know. And then they'd be like, what are your hobbies, Robin? You know, so, like, they were trying to throw me off. And so that third interview, I was starting to get annoyed. And as the interviews got more and more and more, I mean, I probably did about 20. They would just get right to the point. Did you sleep with her? What parts of her body did you see naked? Did you touch her breast? Are you still talking to her? You know, and then they, they just didn't even try to be polite. 
and I was getting hate mail from fans and, you know... People, from her fans. Yeah, and people really just were never convinced that I wasn't the person that was having an affair with her. Mainly, she just wished that her bosses had killed the story like she asked. Back when the original interview went so badly. Yeah, no, I was like, I told you guys that we shouldn't try to make this into a story, and now look, I'm a lesbian in Japan. <laughs> and now this had consequences in America, too. You see, before all this, among the very few articles that Robin had ever written, she'd done another story that had made publicists angry with her. People that are the handlers of celebrities... When they found out about all of this, you know, the publicists in L.A., you know, definitely let each other know when things are going wrong. And there was, to some degree, I feel like a bit of a blackball going on. My reputation was that of being a wild card, maybe not to be trusted with, like, bigger celebrities. So I, I recognize that this is probably the end for me. It was pretty much done. So wait, so your entire like, career in journalism, you basically wrote two stories. You ruined your own reputation. Yes, I did. And that was it. That was it. You don't get to choose what makes your reputation. One dumb mistake can do it. Well, from WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Today on our show, my reputation, stories of people finding themselves at the mercy of what other people think of them and very much not agreeing with what other people think of them. Act one of our show, Not Everybody Loves Raymond. In that act, we have the story of a politician who goes through the kind of scandal that destroys a person's reputation. But uh, he's the unusual politician in that he is willing to talk about it all with a reporter in a way you never hear. Act two, the whole truth. A man asks his closest friends on tape what they really think of him. And he is surprised at what they say. And not in a good way. Stay with us. Act one. Not everybody loves Raymond. This story begins right after a political stampede in New Hampshire. Last year, Democrats won majorities in the state Senate and the House. They toppled both incumbent Republicans in Congress to take the state's two House seats in Washington. They already had a Democratic governor, but now they also took local boards and city councils. The day after the election, Republicans called it a tsunami. Keep in mind, this is New Hampshire, which is usually dominated by Republicans, a kind of uh, libertarian, live-free-or-die sort of Republican. Last time Democrats had the House and the Senate and the governor's mansion in New Hampshire, 1874. The last time they had all that and the two representatives in D.C. was in the 1850s. And in a sense, the politics of New Hampshire is in a way small-town politics. The state representative is a part-time job. It only pays $100 a year. Political news happens on a half-dozen public cable access shows that not many people watch. But it's also sort of big politics because New Hampshire, of course, has the first presidential primary in the country. And New Hampshire politicians and political operatives hang out for months with the presidential hopefuls. Okay, so that is the setting for this story. Sarah Koenig tells what happened. The day after Election Day was suddenly a very, very good time to be a Democrat in New Hampshire. And a good time to be Ray Buckley, too. Buckley was one of the main strategists behind the landslide. Here's how he began his weekly political talk show on cable access TV the next morning. The takeover caused statewide euphoria among Democrats, but you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone happier about it than Buckley. He'd been waiting for this day nearly his entire life. You know, is New Hampshire going to become a permanent Democratic state? That, that makes 
every phone call, every envelope that I've stuffed, every sign I've put up, uh, every single bit of, of that over the last 40 years, absolutely worth it because I feel this is what this has all been for. Buckley's a tall, blonde, round-faced guy who doesn't like the outdoors and has the figure to prove it. He's either called an operative or a hack, depending on your point of view. Whatever he does, he's good at it, and by now he should be. He says he's been obsessed by politics since third grade. By the time he was 14, he made his mother volunteer to run his town's Democratic Committee, a job he was actually already doing, but was too young to have officially, because he was 14. And since then, he's been deep in political campaigns all the time, either running himself, he was the state rep for 18 years, or getting other people elected. He knows the stats on hundreds of Democrats around the state. I found this out at a fundraiser when I casually asked him the name of the woman we'd just been talking to. Um, her first name is Ellie? That yeah, one? What's Eleanor, her last name? Ellie Carpinito. Ellie Carpinito. Yep, from Salem. 15 Scully Square, 03079. And how do you know that? I remember most people's address and phone numbers and emails. That's You do? Some of these people I've been mailing, I've either hand-addressed or put labels for 20, 30 years on an envelope, you know. What's, what's her address? Maggie Lazada, uh, 417 Walnut Street, Manchester, New Hampshire. He's probably been to a lot of their houses, too. New Hampshire is tiny, about a million people, so everybody knows everybody for years back, especially, it seems, in the political world. And for Buckley, this decades-long attention to who's who paid off in November's victories. A few years ago, the Senate Democrats asked him to run their political action committee. He said yes, but only if they'd sign on to what a lot of people thought was a pipe dream, to not only keep the eight seats they had, but to take a majority of the Senate. He studied 20 years' worth of financial records. He invented a new fundraising strategy, and he forced safe candidates, the incumbents, to help the new candidates. It worked. They took the Senate and helped Democrats all the way down the ticket. Now Buckley wanted to be chairman of the party. He wanted to be the guy to make sure New Hampshire stayed Democratic for good. It's an elected position, and it only took two weeks for Buckley to get more than 140 of the 196 committee members to promise they'd vote for him, including all the state's most influential Democrats. But three months before the vote, Buckley was accused of one of the worst things a person can be accused of, something so ugly and dark that almost no one accused of it ever really shakes it, guilty or not. It threatened to ruin not just his career, but his life. We've all seen this story from a distance. The politician accused, the public outcry, embattled press conferences, TV crews tailing a haunted official on his way to a waiting car. And that's all we get. We rarely get to hear what happens offstage. For Ray Buckley, the hardest thing was getting his mind around what the accusation meant, that his dream job, the job he'd already locked up, had suddenly vanished. And that was part of uh, of the horror during the ordeal, to suddenly be benched at a time that is going to be a, uh, a watershed time for our party. It was just, you know, it, not just, it's not just the public humiliation, it's not just um, all of the other stuff of having you know, all these enormous legal bills. And it was, I just spent 40 years working towards this, and it's gone. The whole thing started with another politician, a guy named Steve Valancourt. Valancourt is a Republican state representative from Manchester, an eccentric and a viper when provoked, and he's often provoked. I once wrote a profile of him for the Concord Monitor newspaper in which a colleague sort of affectionately compared him to nuclear waste. He sometimes harmed the very causes he fought for, legalized gambling, legalized marijuana, abolishing the death penalty. 
He's in perpetual motion, and he's also obsessive. He once wrote a book of 5,000 trivia questions about the O.J. Simpson trial. To give you some sense of his frantic style, he's got his own public access TV show called More Politically Alert, and the unedited rawness of it is kind of remarkable. Here he's talking about the committee he's just been assigned to in the legislature, Environment and Agriculture. What he wanted was the Finance Committee, and he doesn't disguise that. We had the introduction. Uh, Steve Taylor, the Department of Agriculture chairman, came in. We make almost a billion dollars a year out of agriculture in this state, and about half of that comes from flowers and garden supplies and things like that. It's going to be a fun year on the Agriculture Committee. Not that I deserve to be on finance, although Ben Baruti and Tom Fahey's union leader column said that uh, I was much better suited for finance than him. And most other people say I'm intelligent. All the media this week has been saying, you're one of the most intelligent people around. Well, I've never claimed to be intelligent or unintelligent. I've just claimed to be what I am, a meat eater. Oh my God! It's all true. like this, a sort of dazzling stream of consciousness that's like an unfiltered glimpse into his brain, and that's also completely entertaining. Valancourt is theatrical, but he's also smart, so his colleagues don't tune him out completely. And it was on his show in early January that he dropped this little bomb about the chairman's race. That the frontrunner, Ray Buckley, will not win as the Democratic Party chairman in balloting later in January. You heard it here first, a shoe will drop. Later in the show, he cues a swirly background and repeats this forecast about Buckley, in the looser Valancourt style. Oh, 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 I'm getting dizzy. Watch out or Ray Buckley will say, I'm drooling. Hey, Raybo, how you doing? <laughs> You're not going to be chairman of the Democratic Party, we predict. Valancourt knew a shoe would drop in the chairman's race because he had already dropped it. He had written a letter to Governor John Lynch. Raymond Buckley, he wrote, has a long history with kiddie pornography. I know for a fact that Mr. Buckley used to smuggle kiddie porn from Amsterdam and Denmark into the United States, inside Newsweek and other magazines. You could not enter his room without stepping over kiddie porn strewn on the floor, the letter said. Someone leaked the letter to the TV news, and once it got out, it was huge. Sources tell News 9 a fellow politician and former friend of Buckley's... Well, Jen and Tom, this is the letter. It's dated December 26th. It's a one-pager written by State Representative Steve Valancourt. He's it accuses Buckley of being attracted to boys aged 4 through 9. It talks about a computer purchased by the Manchester City Democrats in 1998 and allegedly used by Buckley to surf the Internet for child porn. Buckley emphatically Buckley denies the allegations, but he has not responded to repeated attempts for interviews. Valancourt ended the letter by saying, I can only assume that even a cursory investigation will convince you that Mr. Buckley is not the person Democrats or New Hampshire want in a leadership position. The man he sent the letter to, Governor Lynch, has made it a priority to get tougher prison sentences for child predators, and Valancourt almost dared him to ignore the letter. And he hit the most sensitive political issue in the state, New Hampshire's status as the first place to hold presidential primaries every four years. Last summer, Nevada moved its caucus ahead of New Hampshire's primary, and New Hampshire officials have been freaking out ever since. A scandal at the top of the party could give presidential candidates pause. Would they really want to pose for pictures with an accused pervert? And might give other states ammunition for arguing that New Hampshire shouldn't be first anymore. So Governor Lynch responded as Valancourt must have known he would. There were serious allegations made by a state representative, which is why we immediately forwarded the letter to the Department of Justice. And they're managing the situation now. And this was the other thing Lynch said. Well, you know, I didn't and I don't believe that while this matter is pending, he should be um, running for state party chair. 
Valancourt began pushing his case in public. He held an interminable press conference. In the first two and a half minutes, he somehow managed to weave together Julius Caesar, Berlin, Germany, the San Diego Chargers, and Catherine the Great. But he also had moments of clarity. I don't need to be here. So if you ask me, is this going to ruin your career, Representative Valancourt? And I've been asked that often. Ruin my career? Ruin $100 a year job? Ruin my reputation? I say what I feel because I believe somebody has to step forward and tell the truth. I'm not going to come off looking like a good guy no matter what happens, somebody that turns in a friend. But if you believe me, then you've got to believe that at least a dozen, maybe two dozen, maybe more, have known about this for a long time. If you believe me. And as I say, don't believe me if you don't want to. But I do not lie. I do exaggerate. Occasionally I do comedy. But I never lie. I do tend to exaggerate. And most of the things I've said, I don't have proof about. But I think I have enough information so that if you don't want to believe me, you better think twice about not believing me. I'm looking, reading a letter that I, my first response is, boy, <laughs> you know, he, he, to, to have written this sort of a letter, he's, he's got to really, really hate you. Before it made the TV news, before it made the paper, Ray Buckley had gotten a knock on his office door, and two friends had sat him down in a conference room and showed him the letter. And, and I just, I, I wasn't, I, I was kind of thinking of him, I was like, I, I don't think he's thought this through. I don't think he realizes what he just he just did, um, and so it just uh, we we went through uh, the letter step by step, and um, and it was like there's there's no truth to any of this. There's there's nobody that's going to corroborate any of this. Um, how could anyone take this letter seriously? <laughs> his friends assured him the governor was taking it seriously, and that he'd rescinded his support for Buckley's candidacy. Since he's the most important Democrat in the state, their top elected official, this was a big deal, as was the fact that he publicly called for Buckley to withdraw. But Buckley thought, well, it's such nonsense. It'll blow over. I was thinking, well, this is just going to take a couple of days. It's going to be over with by the, by the end of the week, and um, it probably might not even ever make the papers. Uh, well, I went out of that meeting, and, and, and at this point, it's now after five. I just I went home. Are you alone? Yeah. I sorted socks. Um, I really, I, at that point, I didn't want to upset my family, so I didn't want to call them. Um, I didn't, I, I didn't, couldn't talk to any of, of my immediate friends in case they were going to be called in for, for questioning. Um, so I had nobody to talk to. Um, so I remembered that, you know, I really hadn't, you know, organized my sock drawer <laughs> for a while and I brought them all in and dumped them on the couch and I sat there watching TV and uh, and matched socks. It sounds calming, but Buckley says his mind was racing. He's the oldest of nine children and he's close with his parents and step-parents and he was horrified at the idea that they would all be drawn into this somehow. And what was going to happen to his career and how would he pay for the lawyer and how should he act right this minute? He started to get a little paranoid. You know, are the police going to show up at my door tonight? And, you know, um, so don't move anything, you know, because you know, I watched one too many TV shows, I guess. I'm thinking, like, they're going to say, oh, if you you move that book and so there's no dust there, you know. So I, I didn't dare touch anything in my house, you know. And I, I literally didn't even throw out my trash for the first couple of weeks. So I would I put it in my basement. So I could say, 
nothing has left this house. So here's my trash. It was, I didn't clean out my car uh, because I was afraid that someone would see me taking something out of my car and throwing it away and, think, and I'd be accused of, of throwing something out. So my car, you know, for, for through the whole ordeal just became <laughs> increasingly filled with random stuff. I mean, like they, they were like, Christmas gifts that I just hadn't taken out of the car yet. The, the, it kind of, you're, you're, Fear and you know one of the the, the first night, um, you know, I, I look over at the pictures of my you know ten nieces and six nephews, and it's like, you know, are they going to think that odd that I have my nieces and nephews on my living room wall? And you know, do our other uncles have their nieces and nephews? And I don't know. And does that imply something ugly? He couldn't sleep. And for the first time in his life, he lost his appetite. Over the next two months, he'd lose 40 pounds. He'd lie awake at four in the morning and obsess, so he tried sleeping pills, which didn't really help. Of course, he had to tell his parents that soon all their friends were going to see their son accused of kitty porn in the news. He says this isn't something anyone wishes on their parents. It's like they're being punished, too. His family was still recovering from the death of his 11-year-old niece, who died of cystic fibrosis. He says at least when something like that happens, family friends know how to react. People, they would offer, you know, my, my parents and, and my siblings or whatever, you know, love and support. And people knew how to show that sort of support to a family that's grieving. It's like it's hard, but you know what to say. Right. Exactly, exactly. And this is not something that's, uh, that you naturally know whether to bring it up, not to bring it up. How do you, there's a whole different conversation of like, oh, isn't this horrible? This is happening to Raymond, to, and knowing deep down that a person is like, oh, you know, this is really, you know, it just, it just kind of goes down a road that you don't go when you're, you're showing, you know, your sympathy towards, towards a grieving family. Once the news hit, Buckley figured out pretty quickly that the investigation would take weeks, not days. And he finally did what the governor wanted. He pulled out of the chairman's race. And all this time, of course, he had stuff to do. He was head of the Manchester City Democrats, vice chair of the New Hampshire Democratic Party, chairman of the Eastern Region of the DNC, a member of its executive committee. He was vice president of the State Chairs Association and a board member of the National Stonewall Democrats. And he still had a day job as executive director of the Senate Democratic Caucus. He had to go to work. And all day long, he's talking to people who are reading these headlines. But for Buckley, one advantage of doing politics in such a small place is that everybody knew him, and they also knew Valancourt, and they knew the history between them, and most people reacted to the charges with skepticism. Even the state's most notoriously conservative newspaper, The Union Leader, said, quote, this is nothing more than a suspect allegation, and it should be treated as such. The fact that Valancourt admitted having no proof made headlines. No political leaders at the state level, Republican or Democrat, stood by Valancourt, who told me that many people in the gay community did come to him privately, saying they believed him, even if not many public figures did. I was vilified, but I expected to be vilified. People that I had talked to, friends of mine in advance, said, don't do this. It's going to redound to your detriment. I decided that to get my conscience clear once and for all, I would put it out there no matter what it cost me. Meanwhile, Buckley's friends and allies, it was almost as if they started a campaign to keep Buckley from curling up into a fetal position and never leaving his house. This is Donna Susi, who works for the Senate Democrats. Most importantly, in the beginning, I was the one who made him just go to public events and just reach out. Kathy Sullivan was chairwoman of the state party at the time. A couple of us said to Raymond, you are going to the inauguration. It's important for you to be out there. 
Judy Reardon, former chief of staff for a previous governor. You know, be out there. Don't not go to things. He went to the governor's inaugural ball the next day after it broken publicly. And he said again, oh, you know, they're not going to want me there. And we said, no, you are going to inaugural ball because you have to show people that you're not hiding. You have nothing to be ashamed of, that this is all crap. All his friends operated from this notion that it was all crap. And they were confident about that because this was just the latest skirmish between Valancourt and Buckley. For the last 10 years or so, Valancourt's headed out for Ray Buckley for reasons that only Valancourt knows. I've asked and asked, and no one seems to have the answer, or at least admits they do. There are theories, unrequited love, chief among them. They're both gay, but both men swear there's never been a romantic or sexual moment between them, and it's convincing when they say that. They make that face you might make when you imagine your parents in bed. Their friends second the denials. Catherine Rogers has known them both for decades, and she makes that same face. Was he in love with Raymond Buckley? Like, why? Oh, God, no. No, no. And I've seen it in print. You know, maybe there was some relationship. No, there was never anything with the two of them. But Buckley rented a room in Valancourt's house for 16 years, and they were close friends. They hung out all the time and traveled together. They both talk about taking care of each other when one was sick or depressed. Valancourt used to be painfully shy, and Kathy Rogers remembers trying to lure him out of his room with M&M's, E.T. style. But Buckley encouraged him to run for the House, and he did. Back then, Valancourt was a Democrat, and once he was elected, he was quickly promoted to leadership positions because he was talented. But so was Buckley. He'd become the Democratic whip, and um, Valancourt was furious. This is Peter Burling. He was House Democratic leader back then, and he says Valancourt behaved so badly after that, attacking Buckley, attacking him, that he had to demote him. You know, on some level, as I look at these episodes over the last 14 years, I cannot help feeling a profound sense of sadness for Mr. Valancourt. It is um, clear that there is uh, a whole level of competitive um, anxiety, shall we say, uh, that Ray Buckley's success brings out in Mr. Valancourt. After that demotion, Valancourt started to break with the party. And around that same time, he kicked Buckley out of his house, and they went to court over claims of unpaid rent. It wasn't long before Valancourt became a Republican. And all this stuff was very public, not only because of the smallness of the place, but because of public access TV in Manchester. Politics in that city in particular, as Peter Burling said to me, is of the whack and slash variety. This plays out in about half a dozen political TV shows, which can get mean. And Buckley is no innocent here. He can be refined and diplomatic, attending small private gatherings with Barack Obama or John Edwards, but he also gets nasty. That's his job as a party operative. He's like James Carville. On his show, In the Know, he's called other politicians half-witted and freakish, suggested they were mildly retarded or plastered. And just a few months before Valancourt sent his letter to the governor, Buckley went after him. Do you want this guy representing you? Do you want your family's reputation stained by having this guy who absolutely gets unhinged, has no, no ability to really control his behavior, his mouth, and his antics? So when Valancourt made his accusation, Buckley's friends dismissed the whole thing as an act of revenge. But the cops didn't see it that way. They searched for Buckley's old computer. They questioned more than a dozen people, many of whom Valancourt said would corroborate his claims. And Valancourt kept on. He wanted to take a lie detector test, on TV if necessary. He made up a set of polygraph questions, complete with his answers, one of which was, did you and Mr. Buckley ever have a sexual relationship? Answer, no. And handed it around. He offered to be hypnotized, to take phenobarbital. 
When I asked him about the various theories people have for why he'd written his letter, Valancourt said his reason was simply to tell the truth. There was no jealousy, no vendetta. Wipe that out of your mind. There are three people I really hate in the world. Ray Buckley is not one of them. In fact, I admire Ray Buckley for being a good vegetarian and for doing a lot of good things. So that is just hogwash. Peter Burling is one of the people I hate most in the world, and he's the one that developed that hogwash. Because what he'll say is you have professional jealousy. I have no. I've just explained to you. I have no professional jealousy. I have no desire to move up in the political ranks. I have a desire to promote my philosophy of government. Get out of my back, out of my bed, and out of my wallet. Weeks passed, and then a second set of charges came out against Buckley. This time, an unnamed former party staffer, calling himself a concerned Democrat, said Buckley was quote vulgar, disgraceful, and indecent in the workplace. The person said his daily behavior included, quote, sexually harassing male staffers and blacklisting staffers that were not receptive to his sexual remarks or advances. Buckley was floored. He prides himself on getting young people interested in politics the way he was, and he's got many protégés as proof. But Buckley can be really raunchy. He's quick to make a dick joke. And so it's easy to see how he could offend someone. The Senate Democrats hired a lawyer to investigate, and Buckley was cleared of any wrongdoing. But still, it had made the papers, and the piling on was just exhausting. Part of you was just like, I don't want to talk about this anymore. I just want to get my life back. Then you realize that, wow, every time you've ever read of something even remotely similar that's happening to someone, you thought you understood what they were going through. And, oh boy, you do not, and you do not. What was the most surprising part? Just talk about that. Like, What, what was the thing you hadn't anticipated or had, couldn't have imagined? The feeling that um, that you're not in control of your life, um, and I, I, that was that was probably the most difficult thing through the whole ordeal is that I was in charge of my life, and as someone who, starting as a very small child, seemed to kind of think that they were at least in control of me uh that, that i that i was at the mercy of how people thought of me i was at the mercy and although my entire life obviously was based on other people voting for me for either a party office or for an elective office and so my entire life has been at the mercy of of other people and what they thought of me but this was at a different level buckley became unsure not just about whether to throw out his trash but unsure in the most basic way uh, you, you, you just run through everything, you know, it's like, you know, was this a good choice for your life? You know, you know, what was this all about? Why, why did I, why did I move in that house? Why did I befriend that person that I knew was, you know, a different kind of person from day one? You know, why did I think, why did I, why did my ego lead me to believe that I was going to fix this broken person. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Kelly Ayotte, uh, the Attorney General for the state. I have with me uh, the police chief from the city of Manchester, John Deskolka. And then, after more than two months, the Attorney General called a press conference. We are here today to report that our investigation revealed absolutely no evidence that Raymond Buckley uh, possessed child pornography. 
Therefore, we will not be bringing any criminal charges against Mr. Raymond Buckley. And with those two sentences, it was over. The AG went on to say that no one they interviewed could corroborate anything Valancourt had said. No one had come forward with any evidence whatsoever. And that Valancourt himself couldn't describe seeing anything that constituted child pornography under New Hampshire statute. And that he had admitted to police that he had exaggerated in his letter to the governor. And then someone asked whether Valancourt had essentially made all this up. It was clear that if she could have, the attorney general would have said yes. I can tell you that we seriously considered bringing charges uh, against Mr. Valancourt. However, uh, the statute requires that we approve that someone knowingly made a false report to law enforcement. And so therefore, that would be a difficult hurdle for us to initially overcome. Valancourt was there in the crowd, wearing a parka that belonged to Buckley's father, by the way, and videotaping the whole thing. He even asked a couple of questions, and the AG and the cops are answering, using his name in the third person like they don't recognize him, which maybe they don't. In any case, he stages a press conference immediately afterwards. I guess um, it's always good to quote those Dixie chicks, not ready to make nice, I'm not ready to back down. Absolutely everything I wrote in the letter to Governor Lynch is correct. I have to say, I am so saddened, in a sense, today, because this investigation takes me back to when Mark Furman found one glove behind Cato Kalin's house, and uh, Detective Van Adder was running around Los Angeles 30 miles with a vial of blood. Not since then has an investigation been so botched as this one. Valancourt said he was sure there was a cover-up, which he still believes. He said people had known about Buckley for years, and he couldn't understand why the cops gave up so easily. Then someone asked whether he was worried about what would happen to him now, about whether his reputation was ruined. I have only been happier three times in my life, um, two other times. Once, my senior year in college, I was extremely happy, good times. When I fell in love, I was extremely happy. And now, I think it's like a giant cloud has been lifted from my soul. And I feel very happy and at peace with myself more than I have ever done. His only regret, he said, was that he hadn't come forward sooner. But it was like if your sister's doing heroin, he said. You should turn her in, but you just can't. She's your sister. Buckley had been exonerated in the strongest way possible. And within days, he was back on top, doing what New Hampshire politicians do, attending events with presidential candidates. In this case, another scandal survivor, Hillary Clinton. And Raymond Buckley, an early congratulations. You have... You have, and I have a bit of an idea what it's been like. You have gone through this with grace and courage. Congratulations. Hey, Rob. It's Ray Buckley. How are you? Good, good. Hey, obviously, I'm uh, calling through the list for the state chair's race and uh, calling to solicit your support and uh, hoping that you'd uh, consider casting your ballot for me on the 24th. Ray's calling his former supporters. This one jokes, you mean I can't abstain? No. Well, I still have to ask Rob. Buckley was back in the race. The governor endorsed him again. I met with Buckley at the headquarters of the Manchester Democrats eight days before the election. Buckley was working his way down a list of 196 names in tiny print. Let me make another call. I'm in the zone here. Hi, Jerry. It's Ray Buckley. How are you? 
I'm terrific now. <laughs> it was going well. But while I was sitting there in his office, Buckley's cell phone started going nuts, buzzing every minute or two. He'd glance at it and then keep talking. Until a call came from the current chair of the party, Kathy Sullivan. He spoke to her for a second and then asked me to leave the room. While I was standing outside his closed door, a local reporter called me and tipped me off about what was happening. Paul Hodes, the newly elected congressman, one of the state's top Democrats, had just issued a press release saying he was withdrawing his support for Buckley's candidacy because he'd seen a video of Buckley posted on YouTube. Hodes also said he thought the proper authorities should look into the matter. Suddenly, Buckley's candidacy was in jeopardy all over again. The YouTube thing had been posted the day before. Valancourt didn't post it himself, but he gave another Manchester Republican some old home movies for it. It showed Buckley in his 20s and 30s behaving not badly exactly, but embarrassingly. Doing things maybe a gay frat boy would do, and saying things you might say if you were on vacation with your friends or playing a board game late at night, which he was. Would you like me to f*** you home? Hey, about this trip to The Hague. Hitler should have bombed it. This is from Valancourt's old home movies, and what's striking is how intimate they are, even though the content is awful. He and Buckley were such close friends when he shot these movies. Put little clips on him and pull you down the street right by your little nipples. In another part of the video, a narrator points out that Buckley has a MySpace page that's just a few clicks away from gay teenagers. When I came back into the room, Buckley was trying to call his staff members back to work. He needed to send out an urgent email to party members to try to neutralize Hodes' statement. It was a Friday night, and there was a blizzard. Yeah, hey, can you help me try to track down Michael so he can get back here? I can't, I can't hear you, Donna. His car probably isn't going to drive very well in the snow, um, but I need to send out a, an email. I'm at the city Dems office. I had asked Buckley about the YouTube clip the day before when it was posted, and he laughed it off, saying the worst thing about it was that he realized how much he'd aged. The newspapers didn't seem interested either, and they didn't bother writing about it. Now Hodes had just made it a story by saying he was withdrawing his support for Buckley because of it, and Buckley had to fight back. Hey, I, I dropped out once. I'm not doing it again. Two staffers came in and went straight to their desks as if they already knew what to do. Buckley sat down at a laptop. At this moment, he's fighting for his career, for his life's work, really. And what that entails couldn't be more annoyingly small. He's trying to log on to YouTube and extract a six-minute video from cyberspace. Okay, but don't, don't touch. Let's just... How do you even type on this thing? 2006. No, oh, it's my birthday. I was not born in 2006, Michael. I was kidding. Oh. No one's saying much. They all seem utterly focused and purposeful, like a special ops team. Reporters are calling, and Buckley's not picking up. And friends, a couple of whom are lawyers, are calling to give advice. It occurs to me that Buckley's probably had to do this dozens of times for other candidates. Politics is all about tearing down reputations and building them back up. So of course he knows what to do for his own crisis. They find out they can't shut down the video, but they can complain about it online. So their next strategy is to get their friends to become YouTube members so they can flag the video as offensive. You know, Chris is at home. Obviously, Don is at home. Call Judy, you know. Just have them start calling people. After about 40 minutes, they give up on YouTube and concentrate instead on the email they're writing to committee members. Michael is on the phone with an advisor, and they decide on what the message should be, that at the time these movies were filmed, Buckley was young and immature. Michael suggests they fib about his age and say the video was shot when Buckley was in his 20s. Buckley doesn't take his advice. He sidesteps how old he was, and instead concentrates on the bigger question, who should they blame for the attack? Party chairwoman Kathy Sullivan is on the phone, and she proposes blaming the Republican Party as a whole. 
But Buckley isn't so sure. Well, uh, think about it, because uh, if, if it's clearly pinpointed, it's just the two of them operating on their own as these two rogue, disgraced individuals. You know, I, I guess I don't want to make this entirely about me against the Republican Party. Yeah. Are you sure about that? That night, the YouTube video had only been seen 365 times. Despite everything Buckley's people did, the thing stayed in the news for days. And by the end of the week, it had been seen 7,000 more times. If all of you members of the state committee could please take your seats. Finally, the state party had its meeting where they would elect the new chairman. Oh, Martha's writing a check. Then we won't have her take her seat. This was the moment Buckley had been fighting for for three months, the moment that would decide whether he'd get his dream job, whether he'd really survived. There was a little skirmish when Congressman Paul Hodes, the guy who'd started the YouTube flap, gave his speech. But mostly it was pretty civil. Eventually, Kathy Sullivan took the mic. I have the results. Um, Our new chairman with a vote of 109 is Raymond Buckley. After all the cheering, reporters mobbed Buckley, who talked about how, as the new chairman, he wanted to improve civility and political life in New Hampshire. Uh, After the three months uh, that I have just uh, lived through, uh, it's really my mission now. There's no way that you could have survived the three months that I did without coming out a changed person. Throughout this whole thing, people kept talking about the politics of personal destruction and how shocked they were that these tactics had come to New Hampshire. But in a presidential primary year especially, it's hard to be optimistic that people will suddenly be nicer to each other. The real change to come out of all this public political drama will probably end up being private and personal. Because even though his career might have survived, Buckley is changed. He told me he no longer trusts people the way he used to. He no longer wants to make new friends. He polices himself all the time, making sure he doesn't say anything that someone else might find offensive. The other day at lunch, um, a staff person um, used... um, extreme language to reference uh, a person. And I just quickly picked up what was left of my lunch, and I said, I have to to leave the room um, because you said that word, and I I have to leave. Whereas before, you would have laughed or just... wouldn't pay attention. I wouldn't be listening. Now I listen to everything that's going on around me to make sure that, that... Nobody can misinterpret anything that anyone is saying near me that was inappropriate. Because the attorney general's report was so emphatic about clearing him, and because the report was such big news, his reputation's about as good as he could hope for. Some people even said he came out looking stronger for all this. But Buckley thinks he's permanently changed, that he's not sure he'll ever really feel in control of his life again. Sarah Koenig is the producer of our show. Coming up, what if you have a terrible reputation... And then you figure out that it is absolutely correct. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues.
This American Life of Myra Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show, My Reputation. We've arrived at Act 2 of our show, Act 2, The Whole Truth. I think most of us would rather not think about our reputations too much. You know, what's the point? What's it going to do for you? But in this next story, one man, one brave man, faces his reputation. He sets out to learn once and for all what people really think of him. This brave man's name is Gabe Delahaye. A warning to listeners that a word shows up in this story, a word that we beep. I'm well aware that I have a certain reputation. My roommate, Andrew, who went to high school with me and knows me better than almost anyone, who's one of the most thoughtful and considerate people I know, puts it best. Um, this is actually really hard to say to somebody's face, it turns out. I mean, everyone, I don't know. Uh, sorry, I'm actually trying to figure out the best way to do this. Um, I don't know, everyone just thinks you're an asshole. I mean, it's true that I make fun of people all the time. But with my friends, at least, it comes from a good place. Like, that time that Danielle asked me at the bar if I'd seen that episode of 90210 and I shouted, No! before she could even tell me which one. And then I laughed in her face. And okay, I just met her that night. So Lindsay turned to me and said that she wanted me to teach her how to be such an ass And I told her it couldn't be taught. But we were all just joking around, right? That's how I saw it. And I assume my friends saw it that way, too. I mean, Andrew calls me an ass all the time. He warns people about me, right in front of me. But he wouldn't still be my friend if it wasn't kind of a joke. It's just this role that I've been assigned in our group of friends, a role I'm more than happy to play. So I sat Andrew down to make sure he felt the same way. That I'm a quote-unquote ass but I'm not really an ass And right away, he brings up the emails that led to this very conversation. I'd written to ask him if he could be at home at 8 to talk on tape. And at this point, I say, all right, that sounds pretty good. Make sure to tell Craft Services I'm avo-lacto, which is maybe not the funniest joke, but, you know. And you reply, um, I think out of nowhere, uh, sure, how do you take your coffee? Like your women, right? So that's rarely... And then you uh, zing. You know, I thought the whole thing was a little unnecessary. But you don't uh, drink a lot of coffee. (laughs) Right? Yeah, that's true. Have you ever seen me be nice to people? Yeah. Yeah. I can't think of any examples, <laughs> oh, but I'm sure you have. I'm sure you have. Like if you weren't paying attention or something. You've probably gotten up on the subway for somebody or something, right? Maybe not. Why are you still friends with me? I don't know. Inertia? Inertia. Did you hear him say that he was only friends with me out of inertia and I'm the ass? So we're sitting there talking about this stuff, and our friend Travis, who lives in the neighborhood, showed up. And once the two of them could compare notes, something changed. For one, they didn't just think I was an ass because of a well-meaning joke taken too far. It was more than that. Like the time Travis wouldn't take off his stupid bicycle helmet. I think I was carrying something else, like 
it was just easier to just put the helmet on my head, even though I wasn't on my bike. But for some reason, that prompted you to like keep hitting me on my head, which, you know, it was like kind of funny the first time, but it actually kind of hurt. And I was like, stop doing that. So I was telling someone else about it. Like, can you believe what a jerk this guy is? Like, yeah, why is your, why is he your friend? And it's like, well, I was telling you to take the helmet off though. Yeah, but that, that that's not a, that's not a good way to tell someone to take a helmet off. He was right. That was kind of bad. It was like in elementary school when someone would grab your hand and start hitting you in the face with your own hand and ask you why you were hitting yourself. Who does that? Apparently, I do. And the more they talked, the more obvious it became that their feelings about my behavior went much deeper than just thinking I can be an ass. They admitted that lots of times they'll email each other all day long without including me because they figure I'll just make fun of them. And at that moment, in the middle of a question, I had one of those realizations in which you see something you thought you understood in a totally new light. I find that there have been countless situations where I'll call you and you're out with everybody. And no one has called me. Now, that could be because I'm an ass and you guys don't want to hang out with me. I'm now realizing. (laughs) Only now. But that's a very, like, that's that's always been very hurtful to me. It's hard to describe what this was like. The room actually seemed to shrink. Of course it wasn't that every single one of my friends forgot to invite me. Repeatedly. Of course. And maybe it was the uncomfortable laughter, but they hardly noticed that my face was red and I was drenched in sweat. I could imagine that an acquaintance or somebody who had just met me might feel this way about me, but these were two of my best friends and there were times when they would just rather avoid me altogether. Here's Travis kind of seems like you intentionally try and be the kind of aggressive guy who kind of makes people uncomfortable or whatever. Andrew chimed in. Yeah, I feel like you end up setting the threshold for like what people's comfort level with your relationship is. The amount of, you know, aggression or like, you know, back and forth. And if they don't like it, it's often just like, that's it. I guess I just assumed we all have our flaws. Andrew's the kind of guy who argues everything, and I mean everything. Like the word grill, which is popular slang for face. Andrew has maintained for years that it's slang for a ribcage, despite a thousand rap songs to the contrary. Or if Andrew's tired and you're hanging out with him, he just talks about being tired the whole time. And it's like, dude, I get it. You're tired. Go take a nap. But that's my point. We're friends, so I accept all that about him. I don't warn people to avoid the word grill around Andrew. I don't tell them in advance that most of Travis's day-to-day conversation is a string of impenetrable one-liner inside jokes that he would never bother explaining to someone who didn't understand them already. I accept these things about Andrew and Travis as part of the deal, just like I expected them to accept that I could be an ass Which actually, I guess they do. I just don't get to decide what that acceptance looks like. We're friends. We're friends. But... Some of the time spent with you is not fun. That's really well put. It's not about like or dislike. It's just, you know, it's about just how you treat people, I guess. When Travis left, it was pretty tense in our apartment. 
Andrew and I spent half an hour making small talk, saying things like, dinner's a really great meal, you know? Like, out of the three? Just to ensure that our friendship hadn't suffered a mortal blow. The next morning, I woke up with an emotional hangover. I had that anxiety where it feels like someone's sitting on your chest, and I left early for work to avoid seeing Andrew again. I spent the whole day writing emails to people, asking them to remind me that I'm not an ass. When I told them that I was confronting this reputation head-on, the typical reaction was not to reassure me, but just to tell me how brave I was for trying. Oh, one of them wrote, I don't think I could do what you're doing. That sounds really hard. Over the next few weeks, I talked to friends and family to see if they felt the same way, and everyone, down to the last man, had something to say on the subject. My brother. You know, it's it's it's, it's embarrassing, of course, you know, it's, uh... Sometimes you go a bit over the top. My ex-girlfriend, Kate. I think you, I think you honestly embrace it. I mean, do you like knowing that people say they don't like you? My friend, Scott. I didn't like you before I met you. And I had decided that I was not going to talk to you or give you the time of day. And I also tried to persuade other people to dislike you. Even my mom. Well, it used to bother me. Because I thought, um, wow. All this energy I put into this kid and makes fun of me. Then I got okay with it. I think that's kind of where I'm at. I'm mostly okay with it. It's easy to dismiss Andrew or Scott, but my mom? How do I dismiss my mom? By the time I talked to my friend Carrie, who just decided, like, last Friday that she didn't hate me anymore, she asked me the next logical question. So what are you going to do? Are you going to change? Well, uh, it was in that pause right there, when I avoided answering, that I realized what I had done. I believe I'm the first person in history to have staged an intervention on himself. What started out as an attempt to force Andrew into admitting that I wasn't an ass became a referendum on me as a person, with everyone agreeing that he was kind of right. And while I might not have thrown any furniture or beaten my fist against the wall crying out, how could you all do this to me, I did what a lot of people in interventions do. I looked my friends and family in the eye, apologized, and then politely refused to go to rehab. Because, unpleasant as I discovered I can be, I just know in my heart that I'm not changing. And in response to Carrie's question, which is the most obvious question to ask, what am I going to do? Why don't I change? Why don't I stop the teasing and the fake punching and the helmet slapping? I don't know. Inertia? Gabriel Delahaye is an ass living in New York. Our program was produced today by Sarah Koenig and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Jane Feltis, Lisa Pollock, Alyssa Ship, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producers, Julie Snyder. Production help for our show by Seth Land and Tommy Andres. Music help from Jessica Hopper. Web help from Jorge Justin, Sho Zhao Young. Special thanks today to Josh Rogers at New Hampshire Public Radio, to Felice Bellman and Eric Moskowitz at the Concord Monitor, and to Arlene Richman. 
our website. We can get our free weekly podcast, see free clips from our television show, or listen to any of our old shows for that same price, free, www.thisamericanlife.org. We're also trying this experiment right now on Vox.com. We have a place where you can talk about This American Life online with other people who listen to the show, Vox.com. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. This American Life is brought to you by Volkswagen, Safe Happens, and from Audible.com, where you can download audiobooks, magazines, newspapers, and radio shows, including archives from the last 10 years of this show, Audible.com slash This American Life. WBEZ Management Oversight for our program by our boss, Tori Malatia, who really wishes we hadn't aired that story about him a couple weeks ago. Yeah, no, I was like, I told you guys that we shouldn't try to make this into a story, and now look, I'm a lesbian and fan. <laughs> I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of this American life. PRI Public Radio International.